Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So Romans 9, 1 through 8. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, you guys can have a seat. Um, Romans takes a little bit of a hard right turn here in chapter 9, or maybe a detour for a couple of chapters. So if you've been following along in the sermon series, if you've been reading through Romans and you get to the end of chapter 8 and then you start with chapter 9 like this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness, you're right to think, what is he talking about? Like what has just happened? Uh, chapters 1 through 5 are about the gospel and what has been done for us um, by Christ. Chapters 6 through 8 are about what he's doing in us through the gospel. And then chapters 9 through 11 are this, um, well, I'll explain that in a minute. And chapters 12 through 15 are more the practical implications of the gospel for our lives. And so I'm going to go through all of chapter 9 this week. John is going to go through chapter 10 next week, and then I'm going to go through chapter 11 the following week. And two weeks ago was the passage where it says, those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And I said, I'm not going to talk about predestination two weeks ago, but I'll talk about it in a couple weeks. This is the week that I'm going to talk about that. Um, But the context of it here is he starts talking about the Jewish people. So if if you, um, um, if at the beginning of the series, we mentioned this a couple of times, that the Roman church, uh, there was a bit of tension between Jewish people that had become believers in Jesus and non-Jewish people, or Gentiles, that had become believers in Jesus. All the early churches started with Jewish people that became believers in Jesus. They would go around and preach from the Old Testament, because God gave them context to understand who Jesus was, and that he was coming, what the Messiah was that they were waiting for. And some Jewish people would believe in the Messiah and become Christians, and then some non-Jewish people would also come and be Christians. So they'd have mixed churches of Jews and Gentiles, which was a big, just a huge deal in that time. And, and so much of the New Testament, when you realize that, it is dealing with the tension between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. In Rome, they, they did that. They started, this is the best we can understand this, that there are Jewish people that became Christians in Rome, and then they had some Gentile people that became Christians, and so they've got a church that's Jewish and Gentile people together. And then the Roman Empire kicked all of the Jewish people out of Rome including Jewish believers, out of Rome for five years. So it was all Gentile people, and then they came back in, and it's Gentile and Jewish people. So there's, a, there's an underlying subtext in the book of Romans about this tension between Jews and Gentiles. 
And, and so Paul is starting, he's, he's returning to that and speaking into it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he says something amazing right at the beginning of this verse. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is Jewish, and so his kinsmen according to the flesh are Jewish people. And he is saying, he just got done saying at the end of, of Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he's like, I almost wish there was something that could so that my Jewish brothers who have not become to believe in Christ yet would come to believe in Christ. It's an astounding statement. It's something that if you have kids, you're like, I don't care what happens to me as long as my kids are okay. It's that type of statement um, that he makes. And then he builds up the Jewish people and says, they're the, they're the Israelites. They, have the, they were the ones that were initially adopted. God says that these, this is, Israel is my son. They have the glory. They have the covenants. God made his covenants with the people of Israel. Um, he gave them the law on Mount Sinai. They have the worship in the temple and the tabernacle. They have the promises of the Messiah. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Like God set that up so through the Israelite, the Jewish people, would come the Messiah, Jesus, and set that. So he builds up these people. Um, and, but why is he saying all this? Uh, we just came through a passage, I mean, all of chapter 8, really, in, but the end of it particularly, where it's about the assurance that we have in what God has done for us. Those he foreknew, he called, and those he, or he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And last week, I ended with like an impassioned plea about that. If you're new to Oak City Church, that's as impassioned as I get, right? That's it. That's all I got. That's, the, it, that's last, what it was last week is it. It would be like if I'm in the middle of that impassioned plea, and someone, like Andrew might do this, Andrew Ritter might raise his hand in the back and be like, um, hey, I got a question. Uh, what about the Jews? Like, God called them, and God chose them, but they didn't believe in Jesus. Like, what's up with that? That is what he's responding to. Does that make sense? Like, I hadn't understood that before the last couple of weeks reading through commentaries on this passage. That's why he's taking a detour, is because he's got to explain to this Jewish-Gentile church, what happened with the Jews? And so there's a technical question about why Israel didn't all come to believe in Jesus. But then it, it, it ends up being um, a much bigger question about the nature of God and the sovereignty of God. And so here's the first issue. If chapter 8 says God never fails, then why didn't the Israelites who were chosen and called believe in Jesus? And in verse 6, he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. So be clear, that's the accusation, that God screwed this up, that God didn't come through because all of the Jewish people didn't believe. And he gives a very simple answer to this. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It means that the children of the flesh who are the children, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. This is going to be a technical sermon. I'm just going to apologize in advance. Um, it, it's not, it's not the, the, and he made this case earlier in Romans, it's not the physical descendants of Abraham, it's the spiritual descendants of Abraham that pick up the promise. 
And he explains it in this passage by talking about two sets of brothers. Um, so Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They're both physical descendants of Abraham, but Isaac is the one who was the child of the promise. And so the promise went through Isaac, and the promise didn't go through Ishmael. Get it? Both physical descendants, only one is the child of the promise. Um, and then he goes through with Jacob and Esau and says the same thing. They're both physical descendants, Esau and Jacob, but Jacob was the child of the promise. And so it's not the physical descendants, it's the spiritual descendants, which explains why some of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus and some of the Jews did believe in Jesus. But he goes further with this, and he says this about um, Jacob and Esau. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad. He's going to say he chose Jacob over Esau. This is like an outline of the doctrine of election. So here's where he opens a can of worms about free will versus election, which if you've never heard that before, um, it's, we, are, we are going into the deep end of the pool. Um, you know where you learn to swim? The deep end of the pool. And it, there's like a progression that I think you go through in your walk with Jesus. And so you, you may have never thought about this before, uh, but you're going to today. And so the idea predestination. I said this a few weeks ago. God has predetermined a destination for us. The question of, do we choose God... Or does God choose us? That's what he gets into. And chapter 9 unequivocally says, God chose us. And chapter 10, that John's going to go through next week, says, but it sure looks like we chose God. <laughs> and this is throughout the Bible. <laughs> it's throughout the Bible. And it's a tension um, that you have, to, you have to deal with. So in this little verse, and if you could go back to that slide, not only so... When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, though they weren't yet born, he's going to choose Jacob over Esau. And this is a big deal because Esau is the firstborn and Jacob is the secondborn. And so he gives Jacob the birthright. In our culture, that's not a big deal. In their culture, the firstborn always got the bigger portion of the inheritance because the inheritance was always land. And what they didn't want to do if they had eight kids was parcel up the land into eight things and just make the land smaller and smaller and smaller so the firstborn would get half the land so they could keep big plots of land because it mattered in that day. So it was a big deal to be the firstborn. And this happens all through Scripture where the youngest would, will get the favor over the oldest and it doesn't make any sense to them. Before they were born, um, he chose Jacob over Esau. When they had done nothing, either good nor bad, so it wasn't based on anything that they had done, he chose Jacob over Esau. And it's saying he chose Jacob because he chose Jacob because he chose Jacob. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, this loved and hated. He didn't hate Esau. There's a, there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, unless any man hates his father and mother, he can't follow me. That's saying that Jesus has to be the priority in your life over all your other relationships. 
And this is saying that Jacob was the one that found favor with the Lord in a way that Esau didn't. Um, but so the purpose of election might continue because this is how God has worked. And election starts with the nation of Israel where he chose them out of all the nations, out of all the peoples. And he didn't choose them because of something that they were, because they were so strong and powerful. If he wanted to choose something strong and powerful to show his glory, he would have chosen Egypt because they were the superpower in the world. Instead, he chose Abraham to begin a nation. And they were, read Genesis, they're so screwed up, you know. But it was so that he could choose the weakest and most dysfunctional because that's how he could show his power and glory to the world around them. Um, it's election. And here he chooses Jacob over Esau so that his purpose of election might continue. Uh, so that we would know it's by the grace of God and not by our works that he chooses us. I heard someone say this this week, and I'd never thought about this before. This, I've never thought about it this way. There is no grace without election. There's no grace without election. Um, because if it was by anything that we did, instead of just God's choice of us, it's not grace, it's works. Um, again, some of you don't, you're not, you never heard about this, you never thought about it. Try and hang in. If you need to go get another cup of coffee, I totally understand, you know. Um, some of you, like, you've never thought about it, and I think our initial reaction to the doctrine of election is like, that, no way. <laughs> like, that just totally doesn't seem fair. We'll get there. That's how we typically respond. Some of you have thought about it quite a bit, and you're like wrestling with it, and it's going to add fuel to the fire. And a few of you are thinking, it's about time you preach this sermon, because uh, <laughs> like, you're down that road. I first started thinking, I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I... Um, I had a lot of questions during college and spent a few years away. I went through a spiritual revival in my early 20s. And I started thinking about it in my early 20s, um, largely because I was having conversations with my grandmother, who was a self-professed Unitarian, about my faith. Unitarians, and this is how my grandma described them, are people who pray to, whom the, God, to the God to whom it might concern. It was a fairly agnostic position, you know, <laughs> like, like hedging our bets kind of position. And so we just had, they were fine. I love my grandma, man. Just tough, not tough, but whatever, conversations. And I ended, up looking, I ended up looking up every verse in the Bible that spoke to the issue of hell or judgment and writing it down in a notebook, like trying to work through this and came to, to free will versus election. And I was going through a ch to a church in uh, Columbus, Ohio, this big church, and there was a pastor that was over, I was in like the college and young adult group and, which was hundreds of people, and there's this pastor named Steve Edmonds who, who may be my favorite pastor that I've ever had. He was, this guy was such a great guy. He, um, he came to faith during the Jesus movement. He was so sincere that at one point he moved his family. He found some hills in, in Ohio and moved his family to them because he thought the end times were coming. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, when, you, when that time comes, move your family to the hills. Like super sincere guy. The critique of him, he said during seminary, was that he smiled too much and nobody would take him seriously. And he was just so happy. He is the guy that told a friend of mine, he, this is, I had no idea. He said, watch Ramsey, he's going to be a pastor, he's got a pastor's heart. And the friend told me that, I'm like, what is he talking about, you know? And so I went to Pastor Steve, and I'm like, man, Steve, 
free will and election? Like, what is up with this? He's like, oh, yeah, okay. Big smile. Okay. Let me explain this to you. This is like this. It's like, imagine you're standing on train tracks. You're right in the middle, and these train tracks just kind of go straight out to the horizon. What happens to those two tracks as they go out to the horizon? What does it look like to happen? I'm like, I don't know. He said, it looks like they turn into one rail, right? I'm like, I guess. He's like, that's what this is like. You got free will, and you got election. But then as they go off into the distance, it looks like they become the same thing. That doesn't make any sense at all, Steve. I'm more confused now than when I was when I came in. He's like, okay, 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 I got it. Okay, this is it. You walk into the gates of heaven, and the gates on the front say this, this verse, Romans 10, next week. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You did it. But then when you pass through those gates and you look back at the other side of the gates, it's this verse, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be homely and, bla- hom- homely. <laughs> Holy and blameless before him. I'm like, Steve, have you been drinking? Because that doesn't make any sense either. <laughs> you know, the rest of that verse is in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's hard. It's hard. But you start paying attention, and election is all over the Bible. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How many of you watched a movie called Princess Bride? You know that scene? I think people are still watching that movie. This, I remember this in my 20s. The scene where uh, Wesley dies, but they take him to Max. Is that the crazy guy? And is it Max that says he's only mostly dead, or is it his wife that says he's only mostly dead? Max, what? Miracle Max. And he's like, he's not dead, he's only mostly dead. And he shoves that thing down his throat and gets the bellows and whatever. Like I realized, man, election says we're dead. We want to believe we're only mostly dead. Like we can't be that bad. But the scripture says we're dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. There's no grace without election. 1 Peter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father has to do it, to draw us to Jesus. Acts chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. When you start paying it, when you become sensitive to it, you start seeing election all over the place. God chooses us. And Paul, like, knows what we're thinking. Because his next next words are, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
Like that's, there's just something about that that doesn't seem fair, and you're not quite even sure what it is. Um, but is there injustice? And he says, by no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's the one that chooses. I read this um, a quote, it's from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called God in the Dock and never understood where that came from, but then I did. He said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge and God is on trial. God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, and election then man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on trial. And that is a problem. And Paul recognizes it. Um, I found this quote from A.W. Tozer. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of, worthy of thinking, worshiping men. This the church has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Paul continues, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Uh, there's rightfully tension in this. I think there needs to be tension in this. I'll distill it down to after 25 years of thinking and praying and reading about it, what I think is the real question. Um, but the test in this part of the passage, I think, is there's a test to like whether um, we're on trial or whether God's on trial. And it's if you find yourself being sympathetic towards Pharaoh, if you find yourself buying the who can resist his will, it's not Pharaoh's fault. Like, poor Pharaoh. If you find yourself thinking that at all, go read the book of Exodus again. <laughs> Pharaoh had the people of God enslaved. He was committing genocide. He was killing the, the baby boys of um, that nation. When, when the first plagues start, Pharaoh resists, and then he lets them go, but then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And, and draws them back, and then eventually God hardens his, his heart. And I don't know if it's, um, there's a line people say sometimes, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> like you can make a point out of it that that's what God does. Uh, but God is not unjust to Pharaoh. And, and Paul continues, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. I, um, I did a series years ago on like the different metaphors that God uses to describe, I guess they're more than metaphors, but our relationship with him. He uses different pictures. So, so in different parts of scripture, God says that he is the groom and Israel is the bride or the church is the bride. And so um, like in Hosea, we are an unfaithful bride and, and the groom, God the Father, woos us back out into the wilderness so he can bring us back to him. And so it's that picture of um, 
we're, we're his lover, and he's passionately in love with us. That's a picture. He has the picture of he is the king, and we are his subjects. And so that, you know, demands obedience, but he lets us into his kingdom where he is the, he is the benevolent ruler over us. He has the picture of a father and a child. And so just a couple weeks ago, we, we are been adopted into his family, and we can call him daddy. We call him Abba. We can crawl up into his lap and, and tell him everything that we want. Um, this one, and I never thought about this before, and credit to Matt Noble, who's, who's not, he's here every week, but he's not here today, and, um, but he said this is like coffee cup theology, like we are his coffee cup, that's it, and we can't, your coffee cup has never, you never poured coffee in your coffee cup, and your coffee cup be like, ow, that is so hot, you know, your coffee cup has never said to you, hey, don't you think five cups was enough today? It's never happened. Uh, never said, do you ever, you ever think about trying some tea? Uh, just mixing it up a little bit? And so we, we are the clay, and he is the potter, and the clay doesn't speak back to the potter. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And that's a hypothetical. It doesn't say that's what he did, but it, it says that he has every right to do that. Um, God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God, and we're not. And Paul is bringing us to that point. Now, for me, the tension goes to God can do whatever God wants to do because God is God and we are not. But what God does says something about who God is. And so in our minds, when it comes to the idea of election and chosen, when we make a choice, we've got reasons behind our choice, you know, and there's a certain way we think, and we think God thinks the same way. And so when it comes to chosen, it makes me think of like being at recess in elementary school, um, getting picked for teams, and what did you not want to be? You want to be the last one chosen. Because you're not exactly sure why that is, but it's not good, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and there's a stigma that came with it. So we think when God chooses, there has to be a reason. And the only reason that makes sense is something we did. But like, like Ephesians says, that no man may boast, like that doesn't make sense. There's no grace, there's no grace without election. Um, I put a sermon in the weekly this week. It's a sermon that I listened to randomly probably 10, 12 years ago. It was a Tim Keller sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, right in the middle of it. But it talks about Israel being elect. And so he talks about this topic. It's probably the best sermon I've heard on it. And um, he says, he talks about, and I don't know when he gave this sermon, almost 20 years ago. He talks about being in seminary 30 years earlier and his professor addressing this. Um, and his professor said something. He said, hey, I grant you there are big problems with election like intellectually, emotionally, there are big problems. There are far bigger problems with free will. And he ended up in this dialogue with a young woman in the class and who had a roommate that, was not, uh, that did not believe in Jesus. And he's like, well, why did you believe in Jesus and your roommate didn't believe in Jesus? Or why are you saved and your roommate isn't saved? And she's like, well, because I accepted what Jesus did for me. He's like, well, why did you accept what Jesus did for you and they didn't accept what Jesus did for them? And he just goes through this thing. And it's like, did you, are you smarter than someone that didn't believe in Jesus. Like, did you grasp the logic of the gospel? And they didn't. You thought the gospel is a better explanation 
of how things work or a better option for me than, because that says something about you. Um, are you more humble than them? Could you see and accept your sins more clearly and, and the people around you just can't get over themselves? Because that says something about you. Are you more righteous than them? Were you less attached to your sins than they're attached to their sin? Because that says something about you. And answering yes to any of those questions leaves you in a position of superiority. There's no grace without election. He chose you because he chose you because he chose you. Um, I was coming back from Wisconsin yesterday, and I'm going to put these out in a few weeks in the blurb because he's got great, a couple of great things they posted about evangelism. But he said, if you look at anyone and think, man, they'll never come to Jesus, like they're just too hard, too far, too whatever, he's like, you have, you're missing this. Because you think you are like fertile ground. You are ready. You think you're better than them. <laughs> He's like, you're missing it. But you also see the impact when you understand the doctrine of election that no one is outside God's reach. And the problem that it is to think that you are somehow better than the people around you. And that's where election takes you. Um, it doesn't mean God doesn't have a reason. It means we, get to, we don't get to know what it is. And so where, where I've gone to is like God does have the right to do whatever he wants and I was dead in my trespasses and sins I wasn't mostly dead we were dead all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time and that's so hard for us because we give us the benefit of the doubt we don't we have a hard time thinking we were that bad I used a quote a few months ago um, I, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. And that resonated with so many people brought that up to me. It resonates with because we have such a hard time thinking about ourselves as bad. <laughs> uh, it, we have a hard time getting to this point with the doctrine of election. Um, and relative to people around us, maybe we're not, or by the standards we judge good and bad, maybe we're not. But relative to Jesus and who God made us to be, oh man, we are. And Isaiah says even our, our righteousness was and is, as Isaiah puts it, filthy rags. Um, I can understand that this is dependent on God's grace. I get that God had to choose me and I didn't choose God. But the next question is, and this is the question that I don't think we can answer, why doesn't God choose everybody? And this is like the, the backstop of, like not the backstop, it's just like you're, now I don't know where to go with it. And I don't think we can. Um, someone used the analogy of, um, in the, of like paying college tuition for some, maybe some kids that grew up in the inner city and aren't, aren't going to be in a place to pay for it. Or we're not... Uh, uh, graduation speaker will, commencement speaker will sometimes, this has happened a few times, where they're like, at the end of their commencement speech, they're like, and I'm paying off all your student loans. <laughs> Would love to be in that class, you know, or for my kids to be in that class now. And, um, and you're like, well, why, why don't you pay all of them off? Like, that's what this would be like, you know, is kind of its indignation towards it. Unless, and this is the debate about the government right now, paying off everybody's student loans because you think the government can afford it, which is not great thinking because it's your money that they can afford it with. But, um, but, but for, with God, you think he can't afford it. Like, heaven's not 
space confined, you know what I mean? Like, why doesn't he choose everybody? And then that, it, that takes you to the question of, is God fair and is God good? Here's where I hope you're tracking with me. Election is unavoidable in the Bible. I can understand it with myself. There's no grace without election. But why does God do some and not everybody? And what that's really, now God is in the dock, God's on trial, and it's are you, are you just? Are you concerned about justice and fairness? I will, so is God good and can we trust him? This is what this does to you. There is a, a passage in Genesis chapter 15. I never would have noticed this if this stuff hadn't been in the background, this tension hadn't been in the background. And I noticed this years ago. This is where Abraham has been called. He's been given the promise. He's having a tough time believing it because it's like 25 years before that kid shows up. And he's going through all sorts of stuff. And he's like, God, are you really going to do this? And God makes a covenant with him. And at the end of that, it says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, your people, this nation that I'm going to make out of you will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and servants there. What's he talking about? Egypt. He's talking about Egypt. He's, he's prophesying Egypt. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nation Egypt that they serve. And afterward, they'll come out with great possessions. But then he tells them why. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. And your people will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Ten words. Never explains it another place in the Bible. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were the people that were living in the land that God was going to give to Egypt. He was willing to subject his own people to 400 years of slavery in Egypt so that it would be just when he kicks the Amorites out of um, Israel. Is God concerned with justice? Is God fair? On every page of the Bible, yes. Um, ultimately, where do we see God's concern for justice? The cross. And when my mind like goes down this trail and ends up here, like, are you fair, God? He's like, well, there's the cross. I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I realize I've got God on trial. And I've like totally missed it. God's so concerned about justice that he sent his only son from heaven to earth to incarnate among us, to live the life that we're supposed to live, to show us that, to die an unjust death um, in our place to take our consequences so that we could be with him forever. Is God good? Is God fair? And is God just? Yes. A million percent yes. So God is good and we can trust him, but we cannot always understand him. And this again is throughout the Bible just places where we cannot, with this issue, and this is another passage I never would have noticed if it wasn't for this tension between free will and election. There's a parable in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, where he says, this is what the kingdom is like. The man invited um, a bunch of people to the wedding and said they said they would come. I think I can't, I didn't like go through this. He's talking about Israel. But then, they, but then these people all decided they bailed on it. Said, oh, I can't make it, can't make it, can't make it. And he's like, told his servants, well, just go find anybody because they had to have a wedding with no people at it. And so they go to the highways and the byways, and they take anybody who's like the Gentiles. And then they come, they come to the wedding. 
And then there's a guy who doesn't have wedding garments on. It's not the point of where I'm getting to here. And, uh, but at the end of that passage, he says this. For many are called, but few are chosen. Another translation says, many are invited, but few are chosen. And I remember reading that like years ago and thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Like if you're invited, whose choice is it to come or not? It's your choice. But if you're chosen, it's the, it's the chooser's choice. And there's something in this that we're just not going to get. Acts chapter, 20, or Acts chapter 2, this is the Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And so he's gone through the Old Testament. He's got all these Jewish people in, in J- Jerusalem. They, it's been weeks since Jesus has died on the cross, raised from the dead. And he says to, um, he says to all these Jewish people, he goes through the Old Testament, says he was a Messiah. Like you see it here, here, and here. They're like, oh, no, he was the Messiah. Like what are we going to do? He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who put him on the cross? According to that, who put him on the cross? God did. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, who does that sound like put him on the cross? The lawless men did. Well, which is it? He just leaves you there. God did it. It looks like you did it. Even Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But when it comes down to it, Esau in the story gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau did it. But God did it. It, That tension is always going to be there. And there are just places we get where we're not going to be able to understand an infinite God who created trillions of galaxies and these bodies that work with unbelievable systems that work together, and babies. We won't understand that God with the two and a half pounds of gray matter, the Big Mac that we have between our ears of a brain. Like, we just won't. Um, And we can get to that point and have a few choices. And one is to get bent out of shape about it. And I do think, like, the tension is worthy of, like, digging into and exploring, but you got to make sure you don't put God on trial. Um, we can get indignant about it. Uh, we, you could start to think, man, this whole thing was made up and they just couldn't get this part to work out so they decided to have their cake and eat it too. I think people use it to keep God at arm's length and lean away from God instead of leaning into God. That's an option. Or you can worship. I think about Job, and for Job it wasn't an intellectual exercise, and this isn't intellectual. This started and remains personal for me. But it was personal. Job lost everything. And his friends tried to get him to escape the tension, but Job leaned into the tension of that situation. And at the end, God said, hey, I'm God and you're not. Who are you to talk back to me? And Job ended up saying, I've heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And I understand you much more than I used to. Um, John Pritchett and I were talking about this earlier this week. And he said, he grew up, pastor's kid, grew up in church. He said, I got to college. And I just thought free will, because that's what I was raised in. But then I had, and I thought election was stupid. But then I had some friends that were Presbyterians. They're like, oh, no, that's legit. And he said, this is the thing that got me reading my Bible. Like, these are the issues that make us draw closer to God. Um, and, and what it will do to you. People think that election, that the doctrine of election makes people arrogant and ob- obnoxious because, because they believe that they were chosen. 
But if it makes you arrogant, you obviously don't understand it. <laughs> the point is that you didn't deserve to be chosen, and you have no idea why he chose you. But it certainly wasn't something that you did. And it doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you grateful and amazed at higher and higher levels. I mean, and when you just look at it on a personal level and block out everything else, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. God made me alive only because of the mercy that he had on me. And that will blow you away the more that you think about it. Um, and, and if you're worried about, did God choose me? Well, I think if you're worried about that, he did. Just respond. So like if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. So just do that. Because <laughs> that's what it looks like to us. Um, and it will lead to like a deeper understanding of the mercy of God and, and not knowing, like God's choice, but we don't know why or how he makes that choice, leading to you wanting more and more people to understand about the mercy that's available in the Lord. The end of this chapter, he says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness by faith, and that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching to that law um, so the Gentiles weren't worried about righteousness, and they got it, and the Israelites were worried about it, but they didn't get it. Like, what's up with that? And then he says, why? Why did the Israelites not get it? And you'd expect him to say, because God didn't choose them. But instead he says, because they didn't pursue it by faith. This is the whole tension right there, right? <laughs> uh, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And at the end of this, like the rock of offense and the stumbling stone is the grace of God. And it's that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace. And that, that's like that part, so much of the tension is us trying to resolve the fact that we did not do anything that was worthy of us being saved, but God had to do all of it for us. But the further we go down that path, the bigger God is, the more that we worship him. Um, and the greater our love grows for him. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Uh, if you want to talk about this more, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Like I said, this is where I'm at after 25 years of wrestling with it and, um, and reading about it and, and praying about it and having conversations about it. And I understand that it is difficult, and it is the deep end of the pool, but the deep end of the pool is where you really learn how to swim. And God puts us there for a lot of different reasons. We're going to take communion. Um, so John and I are going to be up here offering you um, the bread and the cup, and, and as a way of remembering the grace that God has shown us and what he was willing to do um, in order to, to show his mercy for us and to bring us into uh, his family. Father, I'm thankful for these, this chapter, Lord. I'm thankful for Paul addressing a, um, a difficult doctrine, Lord, a difficult understanding about who you are and who we are um, and, and addressing it directly, Lord. I pray for us. Um, I pray that our thoughts about you would be informed by the words that you've given us, um, by which we understand you, uh, by the stories of how you've worked in um, your relationship with us and with humanity and what they tell us about you. And, and most of all, God, I'm thankful for your mercy and your justice and your fairness and that at the center of all of it, is the cross of Jesus 
And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And I pray for anybody that's confused about this or confused about you but hasn't received what you've done for him in that mercy, that if they see that mercy in front of them, they would just receive it. They would just receive it as a gift that you were offering or to ask, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.